Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Mid-Major Madness podcast. My name is Russ Steinberg. I am joined by my co-editor and resident yoga expert, Chris Schutte. Chris, how are you? I'm feeling flexible. I'm feeling limber. All is, all is good in my world right now. Awesome. So, as we mentioned last week, we would be kind of hopping on here for a few minutes each week during October to talk about our season preview series that we're running on the site. Uh, we got started with that this week. You'll be listening to this on Friday, so Friday will be the uh, end of the week, and we'll be previewing the Northeast Conference, but we started back with the uh, Atlantic Sun on Monday. We've also touched on the Southland, uh, Big Sky, and Big West, so lots of preview stuff. Our staff did a great job putting it together, uh, but before we get to that, and we are going to jump into that uh, pretty soon, we recorded a podcast last week on Monday, and I got it to work, was ready to post it, and by the time I was able to actually do that, it was already out of date, because on Tuesday morning, we found out that the FBI had been investigating um, several Division One college basketball programs. They had made 10 arrests, including uh, four assistant coaches at the Division One level. These were all Power Five schools. We also later saw Rick Pitino essentially get fired. Uh, Brian Bowen, uh, a recruit in question at Louisville, who allegedly received $100,000 to come play at Louisville, is likely not going to be eligible. There's going to be more fallout. We don't know exactly when, in what form, and who it will be. But we do know that this is something that's going to have a significant impact on the college basketball landscape, uh, both this year in terms of just who can play and who can't and beyond when you start looking at recruiting. And you want to think about this from the mid-major perspective. Chris, what were your first thoughts about how this would affect the teams that we talk about? Well, my first, uh, my initial point of thinking was that if there's some big name head coaches dropping, there's going to be some coaches from the mid-major ranks that are probably going to have a chance to move up that they otherwise would not have had the opportunity to. So like say for, for example, Rick Pitino, he goes down, we immediately think, okay, if Louisville decides to go the mid-major route, what coaches are going to be um, potential names? I think you touched on Marvin Menzies. Um, I don't remember the other names at the top of your list, but um, just the the coaching kind of shift and movement from uh, mid-major programs that otherwise might have thought that, you know, we've got our coach locked down for a while. We've got a chance to be pretty good for uh, quite some time. And now all of a sudden that's shaken up and your coach is off to a power five conference with a seven figure paycheck instead of whatever you can offer him. Yeah. And I think it might be maybe putting the cart before the horse to speculate on what those, who those coaches will be, of course, other than Louisville who hired Dave Paget as their interim head coach. Presumably he'll be a candidate for the full-time job at the end of the year, but that could go to a Marvin Menzies, to a Joe Dooley, to someone at the mid-major level. 
You also have to look at Auburn and Bruce Pearl. I think that would be the only other job that we know of right now that's in serious jeopardy, mainly because Auburn is involved was involved in that initial FBI probe, and Pearl has had NCAA issues in the past. So that might be one to open up. And yeah, I, th- I think that's a good point, and you should also look at assistant coaches. Um, there will be openings next to the head coaches as well, and we'll probably see a good amount of movement there too. Uh, something else that I don't think got as much attention maybe as it deserved I know we talked about it briefly on the site, is uh, coaches like Dan Muller and uh, and Rick Ray, who came out and uh, said, you know, I'm tired of hearing everybody say that this is happening everywhere, that every coach is dirty. Uh, because there are a lot of us who do it the right way, and it makes us look bad. And that's that's true, and I, I will say I'm guilty of you know, throwing out the statement, well, everybody cheats, uh-huh. um, because uh, we know, we've known for a long time that this stuff was happening and that a lot of programs do. doesn't mean everybody does. Um, but I think maybe now you might start to see a little bit more of a premium placed on guys that – you know, run a clean program. And those are guys probably that maybe we don't even know as well as athletic directors do as well as other coaches around the country because they talk to each other. They know maybe not exactly who's doing what, but they know the guys who are clean. They certainly do. Um, For example, I'd be shocked if John Beeline's name ever came up. He was the one who college basketball coaches voted uh, with the CBS Candid Coaches Series and said he was the cleanest guy uh, from a major conference. So you might see guys like that really start to move up in the ranks. Um, Chris, what do you think about recruiting? Is is this something that's going to change the game uh, going forward, or is it going to be more like, well, people are going to walk on eggshells in the 2018 class, and eventually it'll shift back to the same world that we've been living in the past however many years. I I do think that programs are going to be a little bit more careful, especially while the investigation is going on. Um, Now, is it going to lead to a widespread shift in the recruiting landscape? Are we going to start seeing uh, McDonald's All-Americans, top 100 recruits, just going to mid-major programs left and right because the power five programs don't have a perceived upper hand anymore. Probably not. At least I don't think so. Um, These schools are still getting the kids because they have the, they're at the highest level of competition. They want to be seen. They want to have the best chance of getting to the NBA. And to put it simply, a lot of mid-major programs just aren't going to be able to offer that. And will it level the playing field? I like to think so, at least in some form, but it's hard to know without um, hearing kind of the fallout or any kind of ramifications or regulations that get placed on it uh, by the NCA if they do end up stepping in. Yeah, that that's going to be the thing to watch because you have to wonder what exactly um, can happen to change the recruiting landscape. I mean, it seems at least right now the shoe companies 
their summer circuits and all of that is here to stay. What happens in terms of communication directly between coaches and the shoe companies or, you know, the shoe companies and specific athletes or AAU programs um, having to do with college decisions? I don't know. I don't know how that's going to be regulated, but it's going to be something to look at. I think you bring up a good point that, you know, the five-star recruits, four-star recruits don't necessarily need the bag to decide that they're going to go to a power five school because they can go somewhere that is on TV all the time. That's probably going to play in the NCAA tournament. Uh, that's basketball crazy. And that's enough for them right there. Never mind probably having an accomplished coach at the helm to lead them. But if they're, are schools, say like a VCU or a Dayton or St. Mary's schools at the mid-major level that generally recruit well but aren't pulling in top 20 classes? Maybe they're in the final five for a lot of four or five-star guys and never quite make the cut. That might be where the playing field is leveled a little bit. And I, you know, I'm not saying that they've lost a bunch of recruits because the players were being paid off, but it's happened. Yeah, It's happened somewhere. Um, so that could level the playing field a little bit, but I think you're right that overall there's not going to be too much of a shift in what the recruiting landscape looks like, again, unless the rules are changed drastically. Yeah, and I think one thing that a lot of people, at least from what I've seen on Twitter just over like the last week or so, just trying, they're speculating how much it's going to change. I mean, the story's only what a week and a half old. There's only a there's a very small amount of information that's actually out there. And the FBI said that their investigation is ongoing. We're a term I saw a lot going around was this is only the tip of the iceberg. There's so much more that's going to happen, and it's just it's too early in the process to really know how any of this is going to affect anything. And I think that we're probably not going to see the any effects really start to take place until maybe two, three years down the road. Yeah, you're right. And of course, you know, even by the time we get to posting this podcast, things may have changed because that could drop at literally any second. Uh, so this is certainly a topic that we're going to revisit uh, throughout the year, probably again during our preseason previews, because I'm sure we haven't heard the last of it before November. Right. Um but for now, it's it's interesting. It's something to keep an eye on, even if we don't quite know where it's going. Is this the? Uh, would you say this is the biggest story in college basketball of your lifetime? I think it can be. I think it can be. Um, it's going to depend on what the ramifications are. Um, trying to think off the top of my head, what some of the bigger game-changing stories have been, I don't think there's any that really comes close to this. I think the realignment era of 2012-2013 really shifted things, and that made a big difference in college basketball. I don't know if there's another story that's as big. I mean, individual team stories, individual player stories are great, and they're memorable, 
but they don't tend to have a lasting impact on college basketball one year to the next like this might be. So if we start to see more high-profile names losing their jobs, if there are more arrests, if there are fundamental rule changes in college basketball, then absolutely it's the biggest story in my lifetime. Yeah, I think that any time that the FBI is involved in something as trivial as college basketball recruiting, um, it's it's probably a pretty big deal. Yeah, absolutely. This isn't, this it, isn't the NCAA going after North Carolina for fake paper classes. This is a government agency arresting college basketball coaches. Like, this is... This is right. real life stuff. Right. And remember, this didn't start as the FBI just deciding we're going to go after college basketball coaches. This kind of fell into their lap uh, from a previous case. Uh, they arrested somebody who basically said, hey, I know all of this illegal stuff that's going on in college basketball. And it sort of snowballed from there. Um, so anyway, we're going to keep an eye on it. But let's dive into what's going on around the college basketball world in terms of the conferences that we previewed this week. Once again, just to run them down for you, we had the Atlantic Sun, the Big Sky, the Big West, the Southland, and the Northeast Conference. Uh, Chris, I know we both kind of talked about this a little bit offline on the first day about the Atlantic Sun that our content sort of accidentally seem to be very Florida Gulf Coast heavy, but there's a reason, and that's because they're a really intriguing program, and I know you had wanted to touch on their coach, Joe Dooley, and what that program is maybe becoming at the low major level. Yeah, I think they're, uh, under Dooley, they're kind of, dare I say, kind of in the same mold as a Middle Tennessee State, just kind of becoming a dominant program in a one-bid league that's consistently going to be able to make the tournament every year. I mean, under Dooley there, we got some of his numbers, 91-46 and 46 in his four years, 45-15 and 15 in the Atlantic Sun. They've won at least 20 games in every year he's been there, um, plus the last two uh, NCAA tournament appearances. And if I were a betting man, I would I would put my money on them making it again this year. They've got a really talented roster, and I think he's kind of shown that he's going to be a force to be reckoned with. And I think that if they do make another NCAA tournament this year, he's going to be a name that comes up a lot in, uh, in the coaching carousel for uh, a Power 5 job that opens up. Yeah, following in the footsteps of Andy Enfield. Right who was the coach of of Florida Gulf Coast during that run they made to the Sweet 16 and is now at USC. Um, There are a couple of different angles that I think you could look at Florida Gulf Coast from if you're wondering why they are the dominant story in that conference. Uh, First thing, and I think you said it really well, is that they're just far and away the best program in that league. And I think it's even more of a difference, um, Florida Gulf Coast in the Atlantic Sun, than Middle Tennessee in Conference USA, because Florida Gulf Coast is the Atlantic yes. Sun. There is no other program in that conference that even comes close in terms of um, 
brand recognition. And it started with that run to the Sweet 16. You read the stories, you know, in the year or so that followed about how applications soared and how everybody suddenly knew who they were and they wanted to play for Dunk City. They wanted to watch Dunk City. That was a really big deal. And that one run really turned that program into something else. And that's why I think even if a school like Lipscomb, who's going to be pretty good and maybe they can win the conference this year, I think that's definitely possible. Greg actually wrote a a good piece about them. And I don't mean to count them out whatsoever because they can definitely contend. But even if, let's say, Lipscomb wins the conference and they go to the NCAA tournament, Florida Gulf Coast is still the program in that league. Unless Lipscomb does something crazy in the tournament, uh, it's still Florida Gulf Coast Conference. If you ask somebody who's in the Atlantic Sun, um, the first thing you, the first answer you get is going to be Florida Gulf Coast, and that's going to be the school that you recognize right away. And that's why I think it matters that we cover them a lot more than we would other schools in that league. And you know, if, if things come up. Uh, from the other schools, of course, we'll talk about them. I really do plan on being at NJIT a few times this year to watch them open their new arena. Uh, So I'm looking forward to that, and I do think there are some other quality programs in that conference. Yeah, I think like you said, we don't don't intentionally just try to focus all in on one, one school. It's just that this one school happens to be really good. There's a lot of fans that care about them and they have a lot of intriguing stories. And it's, I think that goes for any conference that we cover. We're not, we don't try to cover just one team, but if there's a team that like say Gonzaga or that's, that's probably a bad example, but say a, a college of Charleston, they're going to be, they're going to be good this year. They'll probably come up a lot in our um, colonial coverage it's not that we just care about them alone. It's just that they're going to be dominating a lot of the storylines from that conference. And I think that's probably going to be the case with Florida Gulf Coast again this year, unless, like you said, something else happens with one of the other uh, programs in the conference. Right. So, you know, another school that at times can dominate the coverage is Mount St. Mary's in the Northeast Conference, and that's the league that we're going to preview today. I wanted to talk to talk about them and talk about the NEC as a whole a little bit because it's going to be interesting to me. That conference traditionally is one of the bottom three or four in the country. It probably will be again this year, but because of that, any real quality talent that you have, you're in danger of losing on the transfer market. And the NEC was decimated by transfers this off season. Uh, Mount St. Mary's lost Elijah Long, uh, one of the best players in the conference. But that does leave the door open for one of my favorite players, Junior Robinson, to have a first-team All-NEC maybe even NEC player of the year type season. And I'm really excited for that. Um, as somebody, and you know, if you follow us on Twitter or listen to the podcast, you might know I am a pretty short individual. Junior Robinson is shorter than I am. So whenever 
there are players like that in Division One. I. I tend to latch on to them immediately. Um, so that's why I'm a big Junior Robinson fan. But if you look at his numbers from last year in conference, I just have his Ken Palm page up at the moment. He finished in the top 20 in the NEC in offensive rating, uh, percent of possessions used, effective field goal, true shooting percentage, assist rate, steal percentage, free throw percentage, three-point percentage, actually finished in the top 10 in those latter two. He has the experience, and he's one of the more fun players at that really low major level. I'm looking forward to seeing him play this yeah, year. Yeah, I think uh, there's something that's just more exciting about uh, shorter individuals that can really fill it up on a basketball court. I was, I considered myself one of the, the drivers of the Keon Johnson bandwagon last year. Um, Justin Robinson from Monmouth's another fun one. It's just something about these guys that watching them you know, go at guys that are sometimes a foot taller than them and still being able to have an impact and dominate a game is just, it's just exciting. And I think you hit the nail on the head. He's got a chance to step into a bigger role without Elijah Long and uh, Miles Wilson, who are the two other leading scorers from last year. And I would not be surprised if he's a guy that maybe nears 20 points a game, especially in a conference like uh, the NEC. Yeah, and, and another one of those guys who we'll definitely be talking about this year is uh, Chris Clemens yes. from yes. Campbell. He had that kind of coming out party during the conference tournament last year, and I think it was just a lot of fun for us all to watch. Um, now, by the time you're hearing this, of course, our NEC preview content will be up. Uh, Pat knows that conference inside and out, our writer. So he will be able to break down the whole league for you. Again, it's one that's changed drastically this year. Um, Another sort of interesting storyline to me, and it's something that we've talked about on the site before, is that at at LIU, they fired Jack Perry, who had been a very successful coach there. I was very critical of that decision, as were a lot of people, but to LIU's credit... They went out and they got Derek Kellogg, and that's going to be something interesting to me, watching Kellogg, the former coach of UMass now, at a much different level at LIU Brooklyn to see what he can do. And just as somebody who lives in New York, LIU is a program that has a lot of advantages for its level, one of them being that they play a few games every year in Barclays Center. That's a huge draw to recruits. Um, they have a fairly new gym, really nice facilities as well. And of course they're in Brooklyn. That's a program that has been very successful in the past and can continue to be very successful. And I'm really interested to see what Derek Kellogg does there. I remember talking about Kellogg last year, um, about being a coach on the hot seat. And it's funny that we yes. we kind of ragged on him a little bit for kind of falling off the last couple of years at UMass, and then for him to come up at a program like uh, LIU so quickly, um, it just it's kind of 
interesting, and I I agree with you. I'm intrigued to see how he does. Um, he showed that he could coach a mid-major program at a high level, like he did at UMass. He took him to uh, I don't remember if it was 2013 or 2014. I think they they had a pretty high high seed one of those years, and if he can kind of get back to that level, that they could become a staple at the top of the standings year in and year out. And who knows, maybe he gets the program back on track for a couple of years and maybe finds another uh, gig in a little bit higher up of a conference. Yeah, absolutely. I wouldn't put it past him. Um, thinking about everything else that we've touched on this week on the site, anything else? that you think is worth discussing from this week one of college basketball previews? Um, trying to think off the top of my head. Um, I'm very excited to watch Tyler Hall at, uh, at Montana State. Ellie's done a really nice job um, kind of profiling him over the summer. I know she did a nice piece for .com. I think he's going to be one of the more exciting players in all of uh, not just mid-major basketball, but college basketball as a whole. He's going to be somebody I'd definitely try to catch a couple times. Um, nothing else really at the top of my head at the moment. What about you? Well, actually, I have a question for you about Hall. Uh, now that you brought it up just off the top of my head, I know this doesn't quite work as a comparison because Mike Dom is still in college basketball, but... Does Hall have the potential to be this year's version of him, the guy that going into the season maybe only people like you and I or readers of the site really know, but then they really make a name for themselves by putting up absurd numbers during the season and they get a chance to play in March and suddenly everyone knows who they are. Does Do you think he fits the bill to be that kind of guy? Oh, 100%. Um, he's, a, I mean, he's a scorer first and foremost. He's... He's a talented shooter. I think he shot. He, I'm pulling up his stats right now. Uh, 23 points a game last year. Five rebounds. Uh, shot 43% from behind the arc on almost nine attempts. So he's he fits exactly what you look for in a guy that's gonna. If he gets a good matchup in, like, say March Madness, he's gonna be a guy that could potentially go for. 30 or maybe come across the your Twitter timeline like hey get to Montana Montana State game Tyler Hall's got 25 at the half or something like that he, he he does have a little bit of that kind of heat check guy that can be appointment television if he really gets it going yeah they they could be that school that sends you to CBS Sports Network at one in the morning when you should yeah. be going to sleep but Tyler yeah. Hall has 28 points at the half and you need to you need to tune in quickly to see uh one more question i have for you i'm going to put you on the spot there were there were conversations this week on twitter.com between you and a certain mascot in the big west peter the anteater of uc irvine can you Tell us what your relationship is with him. Are you guys on speaking terms? Uh, have have you cleared the air, or is this going to be the big college basketball Twitter feud of the 2017-2018 season? Well, I, I, there's no beef on my side. 
Um, I try to keep my Twitter relationships professional. I think I've been nothing but but friendly to Peter online, as I'm known to do. Um, but if Peter if Peter has beef, then perhaps he'd like to come on the podcast to discuss. I'm more than I'm more than willing to to sit down, talk this out, maybe do a little little counseling if if that's something that he he needs. Um, I Peter, reach out, man. What's what's going on? What's the deal? Well, we actually did have a brief conversation with Peter about coming on the podcast. This was a while back. Uh, this wasn't anything to do with the conversation you were having with him. And he wanted to, but he would have also needed a uh, translator who could put mascot um, hand motions into mm-hmm. words because, believe it or not, just mascot gestures don't come across very well in podcast form. So that is what's holding us back there, unfortunately. Maybe we can get him on a a Periscope or a Facebook Live or something like that. Yeah, that'd be fun. That'd be fun. I'm actually surprised that he didn't go a little bit further in the now world-famous mascot melee. Yeah, um, he might be a victim of being a little bit too much of a cult hero. Um, You know, sometimes... A little, maybe a little too off the grid for some people. It's it's the East Coast bias. Yeah, that's what it is. Maybe maybe he can make a run in, in the 2018 mascot melee. I think he can, but I think he should start campaigning. Yeah, see now. that that's really? the thing for yeah. some of these some of these school uh, schools and mascots. You you gotta just start now. Like maybe. If, Maybe if we actually put in some time into like thinking out seating, we might get a better <laughs> a better result than just hey, this is this is my rationale, like whatever, and then people getting upset in the Twitter mentions about their mascot being a fifteen seat or whatnot. But yeah, what I really didn't count on with that was that some schools were going to take it really seriously right. and some weren't. And the schools that took it really seriously happened to be the lower seeds. So then, of course, they advanced, and I looked like an idiot for um, seeding two teams 15th that went out to the final right. four. So maybe we put a call out like a month ahead and you know, give give schools a chance to you know make their case to get in. Then we can get really extra and do a whole selection Sunday thing or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I actually think that's a good idea because once the field was released, we had people jumping in saying, well, what about this guy? You missed this mascot. You missed this mascot. Well, we only took the ones who were nominated by you guys. So if they weren't nominated, they weren't picked. So now if you didn't see your mascot in the field this time, now is your chance to get their name out there, and they could be in the next one if I decide to do that monster of a game again. (laughs) I don't know. That's it. that was real yes. generated enough enough content for a month straight. That, well, yeah, that's part of the reason. Why that's we that's what you got to do in the dog days of of summer. Sometimes you just the buy game scoops are just not enough to to get us through. Yeah, listeners, friends, you do not know the struggle of trying to 
give you daily coverage of mid-major basketball in July and August um, because there are only so many recruiting scoops, buy game scoops, the basketball tournament recaps. We tried. We We kept the lights on this summer, and I think now we're really starting to ramp it up. We've got some writers who are coming back who were with us last season uh, that we're really excited to welcome back into the fold. And I think we've got a really diverse group of writers from around the country with diff- with various areas of expertise, and that's really going to enhance our coverage this year because I don't think we are going to have really any blind spots no. whatsoever. There might be some leagues that we don't have an expert on, but there won't be any that we aren't invested in in some way. And we tried we tried really hard to make that the case last year, and there were places where we fell short just simply by not having the staff available to us. I don't think that's going to be the case this year. We made it our top priority in the offseason to really um, bear down and – make sure we are covering every square inch of the college basketball landscape. And that's just one of the reasons why I really can't wait to get started with the year. I'm right there with you. I've now that we've got preview content rolling out I'm I can feel the excitement building up. I'm really excited for this season. Like you said, I think we've got a really good group of writers all across the country and I cannot wait for actual basketball to start being played. Well, if you're excited now, I can only tell you, you are going to be bouncing off the walls next week because next Wednesday, Greg Mitchell, who is off on assignment tonight, not on the podcast, he usually is here, will have his WAC season preview content. It's, it's going to be incredible. Something, it will be. It's something that has become a staple of the site, his WAC coverage. Um, we'll also have the America East on Monday, the Big South on Tuesday, the SWAC on Thursday, and the Patriot League on Friday. So you'll have that to look forward to. Um, oh, there, there was one thing that I that we talked about very briefly before we went on, and then I forgot to prepare for it. Um, but we talked about friend of the site, John Ross, <laughs> and the, uh, the meals that he eats. And before we get into exactly what we've noticed and what we've talked about, I'm just going to read just three of his random food tweets here. Give the listeners at home a chance to guess what we're discussing. This um, topic came about today when he was in Cincinnati, and he tweeted, Thanks to at the real Jeff Ruby for another phenomenal meal in Cincinnati. Scallops, crab meat, house salad, veal chop, asparagus, hashtag OTC. That's off the charts. Another one, epic meal at Perry's Steakhouse in Dallas. Best pork chop I've ever had in my life. Scallops, shrimp, chopped salad, steamed broccoli. And then we'll go with one more if I could find a good one here that he has. Um... All right, sick meal at Lure Fish Bar in Soho with uh, John Chambi, rock shrimp tempura, grilled octopus, and tuna. Uh, 
Chris, what have we noticed about these tweets? A lot of seafood. A lot of seafood, and my God, are his orders humongous. See, that's always my biggest question. So today he's in Cincinnati. Is he eating by himself, or is he out with someone else? Because if he's eating with someone else, and say they get, you know, they get a couple entrees to share, a couple appetizers, and then each person gets a side or two, understandable. If John is just at this restaurant by himself eating scallops, crab meat, house salad, veal chop, and asparagus, like, that's a lot of food. Like, <laughs> How is he not, like, 500 pounds? He, I just picture him sitting there alone at, like, a circular restaurant table, and the table's just filled with food. Yeah. He's got, like, a, he's got his napkin tucked into his shirt and, like, a bib. Oh, 100%. And he's got the fork and knife out, and he's just going to town. And, God, I want to see that so badly. Well, since he is a friend of the site, I think that uh, it's only right that we try to try to witness one of these these epic feasts. Absolutely, and we do have to get him on the podcast, and we are going to try to do that before the season starts. Uh, that just reminded me to reach out to him. All right, uh, these podcasts that we're doing where we're just previewing the season over the next couple of weeks, conference by conference, they're going to be a little bit Shorter, just short, just sort of mini check-ins where we complement uh, the stuff that we have on the site. So before we get out of here, anything else to add? Uh, not at the moment. I think think we hit it all. All right, great. Well, then for Chris, I'm Russ. Thank you so much for listening to the Mid-Major Bandness podcast. I'm going to go back to watching playoff baseball now. And hopefully when you hear from us again, the Yankees will still be in it. Have a good night, everybody.